Is truth subjective or objective? Do we collectively create it in our minds, or is it something that we discover? As you guys know, recently I've been going through a book called The Master and His Emissary. And towards the end of the book, he makes this statement. The only certainty, it seems to me, is that those who believe they are certainly right are certainly wrong. That's the intellectual equivalent of saying, it was all a dream. <laughs> this is just one of those weak, limp-wristed ways to avoid the conclusions that you have, uh, you know, that would come from the things you've said before that. This is a really valuable book, and it had a lot of really interesting things to say. But this is a cop-out answer. This is just reasserting all of the stupidity of the dogma of the current way of seeing the world that there is no absolute truth and so everything is just what we make of it. So I want to talk a little bit today about the nature of morality, whether it's subjective or objective. Um, you know, there's that old saying, there are three sides to every argument, your side, their side, and the truth. Um, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of truth to that statement. But the argument for subjectivity, the idea that nothing is truly true, that there is no absolute, is at its heart born out of convenience. All atheism is ultimately convenience-based. It's self-contradicting. For example, at the beginning of this book, The Master and His Emissary, he talked about how he spent 20 years working on it. And you don't spend 20 years writing a book unless you think that whatever you're going to come away with is of some value. You must think that the things that you have to say are true, are more true than what came before. Or you would not spend 20 years of your own life researching, editing, and writing a book, or in fact anything. People that truly live by his maxim that nothing is ultimately true. Those are the people that watch South Park, do cocaine, and kill themselves. That is the lifestyle of someone who is logically consistent with that belief. So the very fact, he is a contradiction in himself. The very fact that he spent 20 years writing a book about the nature of truth or the nature of reality, just in the very end to say, well, there's really no such thing in the end. It's just a contradiction. It's just a lie. He wouldn't spend 20 years writing the book if he believed that. So the core argument of subjectivism is that perspective changes what we see. It is inarguable that perspective does change what we see. But it does not follow that there is no absolute as a result. It's sort of a, an argument born out of laziness. Like, oh, if everyone isn't all good or all bad, then good and bad must not exist. This is a self-contradicting way of seeing the world. What they're saying is, since everyone is a shade of gray, black and white don't exist. But it doesn't take a PhD to figure out that gray can't exist if black and white don't exist. So a more accurate view of seeing morality is that every situation is like a mosaic. Have you ever seen one of those pictures where it looks like someone's face, but if you look at it closer, it's really like a hundred different pictures? Morality is more like that. If I walk into any moral situation where a decision has to be made, it would be easy if one person was all right and the other person was completely wrong. But that's rarely how it works. 
A truer view of morality is something like, I've done five wrong things, three good things, and believed four lies before we even started this conversation. So as we have this conversation, this conversation is resting on the premise of those, let's say, I don't know, 15 things, and sometimes it's more or less, but you get the idea. Anytime you go into a moral situation, you bring to it all the things that you believe, true or false. Every situation, every um, argument is made of, let's say, 50 different uh, pieces, but each 50 different decisions, all of which have a right answer and all of which have a wrong answer. So the idea that it just because it is not unbelievably simple, it is not just A or B, does not mean that the alphabet no longer exists. Because every situation, every false belief that led to the encounter that I'm having, you know, if me and my dad go have an argument right now, every false belief that would uh, escalate that argument had a right decision that could have been made when I believed it. At the moment that I believed the lie, there was a truth that could have been believed. Every wrong decision that I made that changed who I became before I went into that situation had a right answer, had a good and true decision that could have been made in its place. So the idea that everyone being a shade of gray somehow removes the existence of black and white does not logically hold. I don't care if you even don't believe in God or any of that. You don't need to. This is just very straightforward. If there is no black and white, there is no gray. Gray is made of a mixture of black and white, and black and white must exist for gray to exist. So when someone comes along, and we see this in every aspect of our culture, every movie, every TV show, and we see it everywhere. They come along and say, well, you know what? Everyone is truly a mixture of good and bad, and every situation is a mixture of, of a bunch of smaller decisions. So really, is there any real absolute? Is there really any anything truly right or wrong? Isn't it just based on where you're standing? No. No, it isn't. Because every one of those pieces had a right and wrong decision. If I come into contact with you today, and we have an altercation, there are a hundred decisions that I made before I saw you, and every one of those decisions had a right move. And the more I made the wrong move in those 100 other instances, the worse off our interaction will be. And the more I made the right decision and believed the true thing in those 100 instances which came before my interaction with you, the better and truer my interaction with you will be. So no, it is not unbelievably simple, but yes, it is clear. So the idea of subjectivism is that the where you're standing changes what you see, and as a result, there is no essence, there is no thing apart from what we see. That somehow that means that only our seeing is the creation of what is. One argument for the existence of God is the pattern nature of the universe, meaning how much of the world can be understood in a pattern. You know, in a previous time, people used to think that everything was God. So, for example, 
in a previous time, if someone had a mental illness, they would always think that they were being, you know, possessed by a demon or something like that. And so as we've moved into a more scientific time, the idea of the need for God has shrunk. So our temptation, as we've understood more, is to uh, think that that invalidates God somehow. But if you think about it a different way, think about it like this. The fact that things have a pattern to them that at one time could not have a pattern. So for example, schizophrenia. We can see a certain pattern in the universe now, even in a situation as random, as seemingly incoherent as schizophrenia, that we have seen schizophrenics enough, that we have understood enough of them, that we can start to see a pattern there, and that in one regard, the patterned nature of the world should increase our belief in the existence of God. That things which once seemed completely random now have a coherence to them. That the coherence of so much of life, and even the most random things, even the things which seem the most incoherent, do have a pattern to them. And every time we see a pattern to the universe, that should bolster our belief in the existence of God, in the existence of an ultimate creator. Because there is so much coherence, and that science actually illuminates the coherence, the pattern of the way the world is laid out. So it does not hold to me that the understanding of patterns where there used to be no understanding should somehow invalidate the idea of a pattern creator. But let's get back to this idea that where you stand changes what you see. It does change what you see but it doesn't change the value of what you see. So think about it like this. I care a lot more about if my mom dies than if your mom dies. If your mom dies, it doesn't bother me nearly as much as if my mom dies. But the fact that it doesn't bother me as much does not mean that your mom is not valuable, is not as valuable as mine. This is the belief of the subjectivist. That because I don't care as much about your life as I care about mine, then clearly value is just what we put there. That the only value is what we give. That we are the only source of value. This is false. This is a Nietzschean idea. His, his name is really hard to say. <laughs> but Nietzsche believed that Value was aesthetic, meaning we value a attractive puppy more than we value an ugly puppy. And as a result, the only source of value is what we give to it. And this goes together with all the other things he believed. The idea that God was dead, that we had killed him. And, you know, as a result of that, the only thing left is power. And we're seeing this in the world today. That as we lose our Christian... Uh, you know, sense of the world, that we are moving into a time, once again, as the human race, where the only thing that is respected is power. You see this uh, with, you know, you see this right now with the sort of cultural dominance of, of left-wing politics, where they don't care who they bulldoze, they don't care, like, who loses their job, right? There's no morality in that. The only, uh, you know, might makes right 
you know, why do we do it? Because we can, you know, and we don't need anything higher than that. The fact that we can do it is justification for doing it. But again, this is back to this godless view, this dead view of life. I was thinking yesterday about how when you're a kid, or when I was a kid, that things feel, that life feels more sort of mystical. Um, I think you can view the sort of coherence of the world in some way more when you're a kid. I think about the way that I hear people talk about nostalgia, about what it was like to be a kid. You know, you kind of always had this view like one day I'll go be something and one day it's going to be great and one day I'm going to, you know, I'm going to conquer the world or whatever. And that sort of, uh, there's a sort of innocent uh, beauty to that view of life. In some ways I believe the aim of Christianity is to give that back to us. That when I see people talk about nostalgia, what they aren't saying, what goes without saying, is this modern idea that growing up means being jaded. That it is impossible to grow up without being jaded. That it goes without saying that these two things are the same. That they go together. And the Christian view is that no, they don't. That yes, life is more complicated as an adult. And yes, life is more you know, complex, it's harder, it comes with a lot more responsibility, but it does not track that you have to become empty and jaded as a result. And if you do, that is because you are believing some temporary cultural lies about the nature of the world, about the nature of truth. If this is self-contradicting, if subjectivism does not work, because the people who say that you have to believe it, give you an either-or. Those that say, and many people have pointed this out, the people that say there is no right and wrong, say it in such a way that you either have to believe what they're saying, or you're wrong. Either you believe there's no right and wrong, or you're wrong. So it is self-contradicting, it does not work logically. But why then is it so powerful? Because all of life is a retelling, is a reenactment of the Adam and Eve story. And that if we believe that God is dead, if we believe that there is no ultimate meaning, then we get something out of that. That all of those beliefs are a scapegoat to get away with certain things in the fog. Subjectivism is always a scapegoat. This is partially based on the false belief that holiness is somehow self-hatred, that holiness, that living holy, that living disciplined, that living above your vices is somehow denying the true joy of living. But as we live the way we have, as we've moved in our culture from the 60s to the 80s to now, as we've moved from the free sex culture of the 60s, and then throughout you know, the decades, you can see it all through our art, this sort of open you know, uh, condoning of hedonism, the open like belief of live fast, die young. As we try to live that story, we are now starting to see what comes after. Our culture is in a sort of spiritual hangover. 
And I hope that as it is, we start to see that maybe this wasn't the best decision. But the reason we got here, the reason I believe that hedonism had such a strong pull on our culture, on us, is because arrogance, and this is something that's taught in mere Christianity, that pride is the darkest of all evil. It is the most disgusting, the worst of all evil. That if you put, and you can see this in TV shows, by the way, and and I, I love this coherence between, uh, you know, in a way, a proper way of seeing Christianity is that Christianity is moral realism. So, and so there is a coherence, you know. Sometimes people will treat, you know, will treat religion as a science. Like you push these buttons, you get this result. And there is some truth to that because if you don't believe in God but you still act a certain way, you will still get some very, you know, good results generally. That there is some logic to that because it does cohere even if you don't really live in the story but you do, you know, you do these certain things, you will get this certain outcome. So there is a certain logic to that. But there's so much more to the story than that. But think about this. Any TV show you're watching, if the people writing the show want you to turn on a character, they can get every person watching to turn immediately on any of the characters. How do they do it? The writers of the show need one scene of unrepentant arrogance. And every viewer will descend on that character, will turn on that character. We universally hate pride. We universally see it as wicked. And this is going to be very unpopular to say, but let's take a real-world example. Let's take the passing of gay marriage. For scriptural reasons, I don't, uh, you know, I don't support this. I think we're starting to see the lack of coherence that comes from this decision, you know. In a really deep way, it is a divorcing from objective reality of the human body and its function in the world. You know, it is really the playing out of subjectivism, is the separation of the body's function and its cultural function. And I think for decades and, and, and maybe longer, we are going to see a breakdown in the moral and the mental, you know, uh, cultural psyche because we chose what we did. Why did our society choose what it chose? Because we put gay marriage against people who were very arrogant. When you put pride against anything, people will choose anything else. You see it everywhere. I want to get back to our original discussion, but one thing before we leave this. So how do we truly bring about Christianity on earth? Simply by being transparent. The more you try to live on the straight and narrow, the more vulnerable you have to be. Because every ideal is a judge. This is something that Jordan Peterson taught. That if you are trying to do something in the ideal way, if you're trying to live true and good and beautifully, then that is going to judge the people around you so harshly that you do not need to cave to them. That will do nothing but make them more depressed and that will do nothing but harm. Do not cave on your beliefs. Do not cave on what you believe to be good and true and beautiful. Do not become like the people around you. 
to make them feel better. That is not how you make them feel better, and that is not how we make the world a better place. The way you make the world a better place is be vulnerable. Show the weakness. Show where you do not hit the ideal, where you are below par. Show the weakness. And after showing the weakness, reinstate the value of the ideal. Say, you know what? I fell here. I'm falling here all the time. But going towards the good, the true, the beautiful is still worth it. I'm going to limp in that direction. But it is worth limping in that direction. Even though I'm falling, even though I fall in, the true, the good, the beautiful is worth all of the pain to walk up this hill with a broken leg. It is worth the pain. It is worth the struggle. Reinstate the value of the ideal. But to do that, you must first show weakness. The more on the straight and narrow you are, the more vulnerable you must be. The more ideal you try to live, the more judged the people around you will feel. And do not give up on the things you believe to make them feel better. Instead, be vulnerable. Since everyone is flawed, how do you really know who to follow? How do you really know what to trust? There are two ways to evaluate the person that you're following. One, how often do they reflect what they're saying in the words of other people? I mentioned this before, but one way to know you can trust someone is that they use a lot of other people's quotations, they use a lot of other people's references, so that they can show a continuity between what they're trying to say and what other people have said. And then the other thing is, how fairly do they lay out their opponent's argument? If someone fairly lays out the argument of the people who they oppose, then you can more easily trust their argument. The more someone fudges the argument of the people on the other side, the more skepticism you should take towards their argument. But to wrap all of this up, we live in a culture that believes, because everyone is a shade of gray if you zoom out, that nothing really exists, that there is no right, there is no wrong. But these things do not follow. They are not logically consistent. And if they do not track just on basic logic, then why do they have so much power? Because our deepest impulse is to play God. And we would kill God. We would kill our own life's meaning if it meant that we got to do what we wanted as the Titanic sunk. That part of us would quite literally rather rearrange the chairs on the Titanic than to condescend from God's status than to be on a stable ship which we didn't get to pilot. C.S. Lewis said it this way, First principles are not amongst a series of possible systems of value. First principles are the sole source of all value judgment. If first principles are rejected, all value is rejected. And if any value is retained, then first principles must be retained. The effort to refute first principles and to raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. There has never been and never will be a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. What purports to be the new system 
are simply fragments of the old system, wrenched from their context and swollen to madness in their isolation, yet still owing to first principles and to it alone whatever validity they do possess. So all our new systems of morality, every single thing that we try to take the place of objective right and wrong, are simply some isolated fragment of the old system of the natural law. And as we isolate these fragments to please ourselves, we start to see that we are simply rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. That to see through everything is to live in an empty universe. We must admit, we must condescend to our place in the world. We must admit that there is an essence of things. There is a logic to things which we didn't create and we can't destroy in order for us to enjoy anything. There are two ways of seeing the world. One way of seeing the world is that because everyone is a mixture of gray, then black and white do not exist. But the other way of seeing the world is that because everyone is a mixture of gray, black and white must exist. For without black and white, there is no gray.